give you uh, uh, an, uh, a kind of an oversight on, on, on what is going on, but from a, a little bit more sort of an organized, in an organized way, rather than just speaking the general how bad things are or how good things are. Because sometimes, as Avinash said before, the challenge with Afghanistan and explaining the situation of Afghanistan is that you either get a very um, gloomy picture or a doomy picture. I'm an advocate for, for, for the reality in Afghanistan, which has actually both. Uh, there is also an excellent uh, progress happening, but there are also some miserable realities uh, that happen. Um, and so for that, uh, it's important to also have an acknowledgement of, uh, of, of both of this uh, uh, to be able to, to really like cover. So um, what I'm presenting here, and I'm, hope, uh, I'm hoping to also for this to be published, uh, me and one of my colleagues in Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, who is our Senior Research and um, Communications Manager, we both um, drafted a paper uh, on Afghanistan in the regional context, um, uh, the new Afghanistan in the regional context, we call it. Um, uh, it was presented uh, last month in Sydney in a Quad uh, Plus uh, countries uh, meeting. Uh, so I thought it would also be relevant to the discussions that you have. You are all studying security and international diplomacy, so in a way it is also uh, kind of relevant to you. So in this paper that uh, Nishank and myself has uh, have prepared, we have basically looked into the, the, the sort of main question here is that how is Afghanistan's internal dynamics linked to regional and global politics? Um, and the line of argument we follow basically is that Afghan conflict is not, um, is it is as much an internal conflict as it is external. And an external can, uh, can have a wide range of, you know, being external from the region, immediate region, far region, and even global. And it's not a new phenomenon in Afghanistan. If you look at the history of the country, of course, I will not probably go too much to the history, as I know around the table are quite knowledgeable people, either based on their background or familiarity with Afghanistan, so it is uh, the same. So the line of argument is that actually, for in order to understand uh, what is going on there, if you ignore or bypass one of these aspects, the internal versus the external, you're not going to get a full picture of what's going on there. So in terms of um, internal political dynamics, um, uh, and I have to say that my, my PhD, uh, well, which I completed in uh, development studies, and I'll have a, a lecture with more details on my work uh, later this week on Thursday, uh, it focused more on the local power dynamics. So I, in that case, I focused on village governance and how external interventions in the form of military intervention, in the form of development intervention, in the form of military and development, how, and also generally simple civil society sort of interventions, how they change the local power dynamics. So drawing on those sort of um, uh, assessments and analysis, uh, the sort of argument that I'm making here is that Afghanistan's internal relations um, can only be seen through the lens of sort of uh, patient-client relations but not the traditional or the typical patient-client relations that are sort of articulated by, by um, James Scott. Uh, because in the traditional one, uh, the patrimonial systems generally um, uh, are based on, you know, the patrons having their source of legitimacy based on local 
resources for power. Uh, for example, class, for example, access to property, for example, repetition. Um, in at the very best, probably the relations with outside. So how they were sort of how strong or not strong relation stronger relationship was there between the local power person, power holder, and the central government. And the case of the uh, current um, Afghanistan, as we know historically, that the country has been under, you know, um, direct or indirect forms of uh, interventions historically for its state institution buildings. Uh, what happened in Afghanistan? The relations there could be considered as pattern client, but more in a modern way of uh, the patterns not simply only limiting their sources of power to the country itself. Uh, there is a major factor that plays into turning someone as a pattern, and that is the external um, support in financing and external sort of um, um, provision of different resources, whether it is economic resources like funding, or it is like sanctuary resources like you know shelters basically, that also turns people into patterns who are at the moment forming most of our elite circles. So if you look at the background of most of the Afghan political elites, they cannot be simply seen through the lens of the traditional patterns, for example, who came either based on their um, uh, lineage in terms of being part of the royal families, because we were a royal monarchy until uh, 1960s. Uh, it is uh, also not coming simply only on the basis of religion, that we have spiritual le religious leaders, but there are newly emerged leaders that a generation before, two generations before, they didn't really um, ha have a very significant role, but they emerged as the result of the war. Um, so in order to understand the internal sort of political dynamics, it's really important to sort of look at the history of how the newly emerged elites are taking the shape and what really brings them. So here I'm sort of putting um, a definition of elites which I learned in my sort of literature review time when I was um, studying. And I found it quite interesting with uh, Dijon, who also teaches here, I'm sure most of you are familiar with him, and Patzel, both of them, they, they sort of defined elite in this way of those who are uh, positioning of values and assets in agriculture, manufacturing services, uh, or those who are wield substantial power in education, uh, distribution of allocation of property, and then there are examples, those who possess authority to bargain on behalf of rural communities or organize religious communities. Like I explained in the Afghan cases, we have spiritual leader, uh, religious leaders, we had you know, leaders who came from the moral, but then we had complete new class of leaders emerging as a result of the years of war. So what is missed from this definition is actually this a uh, bigger part of these newly emerged groups. Um, and to, fit it, to try to fit them into the previous pre-war kind of uh, elites, it's not really working. To fit them into the religious, it's not really working. And, but the, the only way we can see uh, and we can understand them is to address and to admit, to actually acknowledge their dependency to external uh, forces, whether these external forces are our immediate neighbors, or it is further 
expanded to global actors in the global politics, such as the United States, such as the Soviet Union of the time, the Russians of today, and uh, um, Saudi Arabia, Gulf countries, and so forth. So um, this is just like a background sort of line of argument to say, okay, like where our current political elites come. But then with these elites taking the lead in the country, we've had since uh, 2004, since the finalization of the Afghan constitution and uh, approval of the constitution in a very public event, in 2004, we've had a series of democratic processes in place. Now, I always call it democratic processes because, in principle, these are democratic processes. We have elections, elections represent, uh, elections elect people who will supposedly have to represent uh, them in the political settings. Um, but I always remind myself and everyone in my conversations, interviews, and discussions that, okay, let's not deceive ourselves. It's not an entirely democratic process because. Uh, now there are sort of examples of how the election results are being contested, but even more than that, it's not actually the direct vote that represents someone. It is more the elite's capture of the whole power, sort of uh, top level of power relations that really reflects who leads Afghanistan. And Afghanistan, um, uh, who are the political elites, but also the role that the external uh, actors have in Afghanistan, be it the international community in the frame of uh, you know, the US and its allies, be it the religious networks from the region and from the religious sort of capitals, such as Saudi and such as Iran, such as Qumran Najaf, if we go very specific to the, like one, one part of the, um, the, the sort of country. So besides that, I mean, as we cannot spend all the time speak about the history and background to come very specifically to the current uh, sort of context. So to sum it up, I mean, in terms of elections, we agree and we realize the fact, uh, despite this realization of who are the elites and how they come to exist and who is representing and not representing the people, we, in principle, as Afghan civil society and as Afghan people in general, accepted that, okay, despite its flaws, despite the challenges that we face, democracy is the only way ahead. Elections, as much as it is challenging and contested, and as much as it is destroying the local sort of, you know, uh, some of the positive dis uh, uh, customs and traditions that are for representation of people, it is really um, the only way that we go um, forward. So that's why we always, this is like a motto in the country that a bad election is better than no election. And the result of a bad election was the what we had in the last uh, October in 2018, a parliamentary election happened. Um, there was, um, that we still don't know the results, uh, around 8.5 million of the population um, registered for as voters. In fact, the initial numbers were a little longer, higher than that, but we just reduced another million because we know that the, 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 the numbers were not, and not only we, like they were like monitoring organizations on elections that they agreed that the numbers were a bit <coughs> exaggerated, but we can accept uh, 8.5 uh, million. So um, from this, 34% uh, of the voters were uh, registered were women, so that means that women's participation was also 
um, quite good in the uh, in the registration process. Uh, and uh, finally, the elections happened um, uh, in 33 provinces. Uh, Ghazni province was exempted from the elections because of the, mm, the Taliban attack and the complete security challenges there that could not allow the elections to happen. As a result, we had also quite a um, serious level of violence in the elections days and finally um, we had losses and we had also you know, some candidates who uh, lost their lives in the process, campaigners were targeted of uh, violence and even voters on the day of elections. Um, on a sort of a personal note, I can say that the day of elections was quite an emotional day for most of the Afghans because once again uh, what was proved which is not generally the way Afghanistan is represented is uh, I mean the t traditional way of Afghanistan being represented is as this is a very like backward country uh, extremely traditional in a tribal system they are wild they don't care about you know elections and these things so the reason democracy doesn't function in this country it's because people are not ready what we saw based on the 8.5 million registration and based on the day of election that despite uh, the election day being one of the most, you know, in terms of sounds and noises because a lot of it went completely unreported, it was one of the most um, violent days um, in, uh, if we compare with the rest of the election days. So bombs literally going off here and there, and yet you would see queues of people starting, um, waiting to, to use their right uh, to vote. Um, from young to old and different generations, men and women across the country. So people took the risk for their lives to participate in this process, while unfortunately the failure was by the um, elections commission who did not manage to deliver because of the political pressure, because of lack of um, capacity, if we can say, and they turned the day to be a complete failure on their side because the election commission officers had no idea how to manage the crisis, manage the problems, figure out how to use the biometric um, you know, equipment, which was very freshly introduced uh, because of the political pressure that there is a chance of fraud. So all of this chaos resulted in a very chaotic day, although people, uh, some people unfortunately lost their lives in that day, but also in general, uh, the election was also extended for another day, and then finally, now, uh, I mean, months and months after the elections, there are no results uh, uh, that are finalized. Uh, from some provinces, they say it's finalized, but it's not declared as a completed elections. Uh, at the same time, because of the political pressure and all, all these failures, all the commissioner, commissioners of the um, IEC commission uh, were dismissed. So there is a new commission, both um, election commission and the IEC now are led by two women. Um, well, they are women, it has to be appreciated in a country that is very difficult for women, women to get access, but then I'm of the opinion as a women's rights activist also all my life um, and now in academia and research, I'm of the opinion that the gender is not as much a priority as much as capacity is. Elections is a national matter and people who are capable of managing and handling things should be on the lead, not just because they are simply women or not. So I'm not saying these people are not qualified, we have to see and I'm sure the presidential candidates, all of whom were part of the decision-making, they have 
uh, made their mind based on some level of genuinity to and respect to the to a national process. Um, so we're waiting to see the results of the elections happening. In terms of the democratic process, so four elections are ahead of us this year, four altogether. Um, uh, it is promised by IEC that the, the entire four elections will happen uh, on one single day again, uh, which seems a little bit uh, unrealistic. Yeah, I can see <laughs> your facial expressions. Ours is not very different from it, but um, it's the promise of the government that they will deliver. Um, Traditionally, elections, presidential and provincial elections are happening at the same time. But we have this long discussions, and I know today it will not be uh, possible to go to that, but the district council elections is another saga. I mean, it keeps coming and going away and coming and going away, so it is now put here. Although there is no sign of developments on it, but um, it seems that the government is promising district council elections to also be happening. And finally, one uh, prov uh, one province will have like all four uh, elections together, parliamentary, district, um, provincial, and uh, presidential council, which is Ghazni. So this is related to the, uh, I mean, the candidates are there, and we can then probably go in the Q&A part if the, you had specific questions. Um, the peace process is another big thing. Um, a lot of the peace process, um, so far is um, um, to to me as an Afghan it sounds uh, like more of a PR business rather than actually something with content and something with substance that you can discuss about because it's all like it's the day one we have break we have lunch we have dinner we had a breakfast this morning with number two of the Taliban oh I was passing the corridor and he was there you know like it's all a little bit dramatization of the actual you know thing and it's, this is in a situation that every single Afghan is like tuned to TVs and radios and news and trying to understand what's going on because for the US and for the Taliban probably it's about their specific interests but for the Afghan people it's about their life whether they can live or not like for my 18 year old cousin it's about um, her preparations for the university exam entries. She says, should I prepare or not? Am I going to university or I'm not going? You know, like people, it's all about that. Everyone takes this in a very stressful way because um, there is a huge level of ambiguity on what is happening and not much transparency in what actually is being discussed. I think now we are on the day 14 or 15 maybe, day 15, with some days who are breaks, breaks, they have breaks some days. Um, during the India-Pakistan tension, they had like one day of two, 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 three days of break. So one will raise a question like, what is the relation between that and the Taliban? And some some kind of um, how you can say slippery uh, comments were also made. For example, the Pakistani ambassador came to media and said, "Oh, the the talks could be affected by." minutes okay so uh, well, in two minutes I will just yeah. rush you because I'm sure this part you are more experts than I will be um, it's the external and regional dynamics of the conflict so we all know that the Afghan conflict like as I mentioned at the very earlier um, part uh, is that you cannot see one side and ignore the other side the the um, the external parts are also, uh, like we say, that the talks are happening, but it's uh, completely um, sidelining the government at this stage. Uh, there is no Afghan representation uh, if we consider 
uh, Taliban Afghan, it's like one specific group who are like, who have been and are still using terrorism as the means to reach to their goals, they are on the table and no one else. Um, people whose lives are affected are not part of the negotiation and that's like a matter of um, uh, concern. So um, um, this is also highlighted by some people who reflect, like the European diplomat who told us everyone is talking to everyone but the Afghan government, uh, although the, the Afghan government and the Afghan state is there. Um, Taliban have their argument why they are not talking to the government, but that's to me personal as a completely non-governmental person is not uh, something I accept. It's not a matter of who is leading the government, it's a matter of the Afghan state and the recognition of that state. Um, I will not go into uh, the de details of, you know, the, 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 the um, sort of what happens to the vacuum of, you know, power when the um, Americans withdraw, as this is a serious point um, of um, negotiation and um, deal uh, on the negotiations process or the peace uh, talks. Uh, there is also, you know, the regional and sort of farther regional also countries having their own interests and their own sort of competing and rivalry sort of relations. And um, some look at the Afghan peace process <coughs> with an expectation of, oh, this is going to solve the entire um, conflict that are there, which is a complete unrealistic expectations. Saudis and uh, Iranians are not good with each other, and they reflect that in the relations with Afghanistan and who they support in Afghanistan. Pakistan and India, in, in instances like I gave the example, is the same. So as a result, Russia and Iran are directly talking to the Taliban, although historically there, if you go, it doesn't make really sense how they are talking, but they actually do. Even if they don't, they pretend that they are doing this, like the Iranian foreign minister once um, say. So what we sort of come up with is that, okay, it's important to really acknowledge this level of rivalry that exists, um, try to sort of um, look at it more from, the, um, from this competing rivalry perspective than uh, expect it to simply um, give you a sense of this will resolve the entire ongoing um, uh, conflicts between different countries. Our expectation uh, for the next phase um, is to see more sort of answers to these questions. Um, I don't have, at least in here, I don't want to have like, you know, recommendations and say this should be done and that should be done. In my opinion, it's more like for us, it's, these are more the questions that we need to sort of seek answers for. For example, what is at stake? Uh, we as women groups are concerned about what is at stake for us. Are we going back? Of course, the response from Afghan women is that they are not going back anywhere uh, to the same uh, Stone Age eras. Uh, for the Taliban, what is at stake? What are they going to lose? And for the Afghan state, in the same way for the newly emerged Afghan groups. So it's not about women only, it's about a generation of Afghans, young uh, men and women who have uh, learned so much, who are in stronger positions, and they are sort of bypassing all kind of lineages, including the external dependency lineage, and they are now like strong leaders. So what, what is at stake for them in this new settlement? And then what will be the role of the international and regional actors in the new? So who, who is coming, every, is everyone having a, does everyone have a clear picture of what will be their role in the new phase of Afghanistan where 
either Taliban will be integrated in the existing system or according to the Taliban, which is more worrying, if they come and completely take over. And finally, um, is there an option for Afghanistan to pave a way towards sustainability? As we speak, Afghanistan to this date, from the 19th century, uh, late 18th, early 19th century, we have always been dependent on donors. Afghan state functions if there is money from outside uh, because we don't have enough revenues from our own country. So is there a way that we can survive? If not, like who is going to check in, who is going to support the Afghan state and at what price? And of course, finally, how we can avoid re repeating the mistakes of the past. We had a very similar situation with the Soviet uh, Union decided to withdraw from Afghanistan between 1989, 88, basically the final departure, and the 89 to 93, we had the bloodiest time in the country, and also followed until 96. So the biggest fear that we all have as Afghans is how we can find ways not to see the repeat of that. And um, the final one, uh, who can be guarantors of a sustaining and inclusive deal? So if the Americans and the Taliban are two major size, what is the role of everyone else? And who could be potentially? So these are kind of questions that we have in our mind and we go around trying to learn how we can get sort of answers for it. Thank I you so hope much. I didn't go beyond. No, no, uh, we have about 20, 25 minutes for Q&A. I'll hold my thoughts. Uh, please, please. So, um, is Taliban part of the solution, and is the United States part of the problem or part of the solution? Well, everyone, every party in war and conflict is part of the problem. Uh, but now, in principle, if Taliban are coming to a negotiation table, uh, we would wish to see them as a part of a solution rather than a Taliban, uh, rather than a problem. So, are they honest in this or not? Nobody can do this. Nobody can tell you whether they are genuine and honest. I mean, facts show that they are not honest, but I mean, facts not only about the Taliban, facts about the Mujahideen and the Taliban, and all the shows that they are not honest because. With the and when I say Mujahideen, I talk about the anti-Soviet uh, uh, fighters. Yeah, they went. The, the, in the like, I'm going back to the history just to give you a sense why we are concerned about the repeat, or potential repeat of the same situation. Um, between '89, basically, basically between '93 to '96, when there was this ongoing war, the the Afghan Mujahideen leaders uh, went and sworn I don't know in how many places. I, I mean, at least I remember one very clearly. They went to the holy uh, city of Mecca, mm -hmm. and they swore there that they will stop the war. Mm -hmm. As soon as they arrived back in the country, they started fighting against each other. So we don't see that, like I personally don't see the war um, um, as a civil war in the sense that it was a complete Afghans killing Afghans. Mm -hmm. It was a regional war because yeah. the United States departed from the country um, uh, upon the withdrawal of the Soviets. Mm -hmm. The Soviets also um, left and then the country without any proper functioning system fell into the hand of the regions. Okay. So eight parties were financed and supported by Iran. Uh, we call it Buroi Ashgana. Seven parties were supported and financed by the Pakistan and the you know the Arab countries. Mm -hmm. 
and the 15 parties were just like not killing each other, uh, just massacring people. And it was like a, a, a real, I mean, there are records and it's not like propaganda. Of course, everyone now is becoming this very like human loving humanist <laughs> and coming and appearing as if nothing happened and it was all lies by yeah. whoever. But I mean, they are witnesses. Um, I was away at that time, but I have a lot of family, a lot of people uh, in my office, in my community, in where I live and where I work. That's they, 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 they lived it and they experienced it. Mm -hmm. uh, how the rocket attacks were destroying the country, how the rivalries between two, so alliances will shift, switch, rivalries will sh uh, shift and switch. And as a result, there was a massive destruction of Kabul. So the Kabul city was actually not destroyed uh, physically under the Taliban. Mm -hmm. It was destroyed during the war, the civil fighting. Uh, and of course, the last final days of Taliban also resulted in some bombings by the US um, mm -hmm. into some areas. But the actual massive destruction of the city and turning it into a um, complete destruction site was a um, result of the civil war. So that is like the, the, the biggest nightmare that everyone is having at the moment because uh, people who are old enough to remember that period, they are in fear of seeing the repeat of the same. Mm -hmm. The very young generation of the millennials, like those who were born after 2000 and 2001, they are fearing because their understanding of who the Taliban are is this Taliban who are terrorists. Who, this is the Taliban who have blown themselves up inside a classroom, in a school, at a hospital, you're in front of a hospital, you know, everywhere basically, like this indiscriminately killing the Afghan civilians. So it's also a nightmare for the younger generation. And they say, oh, if, the, if that kind of people come and take power, like what should we do? Like, this is like a, uh, a recipe for, 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 for complete, uh, you know, massacre. Uh, so I always say both Taliban, the Americans, even the Afghan government to an extent, they all have a huge responsibility ahead of them. It is to earn people's trust. And it's not very easy to earn people's trust. Uh, they are going to do that. People don't have a lot of power. We are not a country where we can freely demonstrate and express our views. Eh? Like well, in times when we didn't demonstrate it, there were people who were killed. Yeah. We had several demonstrations, um, kind of civilian demonstration, becoming the target of um, uh, terrorist attacks. So that really doesn't give us much choice. So, but it's much more. Uh, sort of a moral responsibility of different parties. How do you assess uh, the effect of state building while uh, fighting the insurgency you know, in the same time? Uh, how do you assess mm -hmm. in the last 10 years? Has state building you know, become stronger and stronger or succeeding? Or because of all the parties are shifting to uh, fight the war, Mm -hmm. the state um, very good question. Uh, in terms of state building and um, fighting insurgency, uh, of course, on like the, the, the numbers are coming from our losses in the security sector is at shocking level. 45,000 people in how long? Four years. Four and a half. Four and a half years, right? It's a shocking number. And um, to me, it's not an exaggerated problem. It's a little bit even not reported because I don't know how many 
what what is the counting system. Uh, but what I know is to every time I go to my village, I see the graveyards getting larger and larger, and it's not uh, normal to see the graveyards getting larger. And it's a, a lot of flags because when younger and when soldiers are dying, there are always the Afghan flag on their graveyard. Sometimes you see, you know, an Afghan and a Taliban flag next to each other. So that also is a so. I mean, coming back to to the state building in. Um, uh, security sector. I mean, there is always a, um, a, a demand for for developments um, in infrastructure to also be part of the budgets, uh, national budgeting. So, the, although we have a quite a big um, uh, chunk of our national budgets uh, dedicated for security, but because of the external funding, we are the burden is not so heavy. So we are not yet in the stage to, to basically suck money from everywhere else and put it into security. Americans are supporting us, British are, several other countries, uh, you know, NATO is like there and everyone is operating under NATO now in terms of military assistance. So it is not yet uh, very significant. But in terms of state building, I tell you this. I mean, one is a planned state building intervention. One is the, the evolution of states' institutions and how they shape it. They take shape as time passes. Um, my overall assessment is that since, uh, since uh, late 19th century, we didn't really do much on building state institutions, to be honest. When we were in peace, we didn't expand it further. When we were in war, we have a big excuse that we were at war. So in the Amir Abdurrahman Khan time, the state institutions were built uh, and up until the district level. So we have, the, we have like, well, right now we have like approximately 400 districts in Afghanistan. We have 34 provinces and 400 districts, which are like the state administrative units. We have over 35,000 villages. Uh, no formal representation of the state there. Of course, there are, there are informers. And in my uh, con conversation, in my talk um, on Thursday, I will be talking more about it. But in terms of building institutions, we haven't done much. In terms of strengthening the institutions, it is completely shadowed by the security situation, obviously. And I tell you, I don't know how many times you are opening the news and you see Afghanistan and you see all these maps that talk about who controls where, and I always like challenge that, the map with the reds and greens and yellows. And I say like, come on, uh, what, is, what do you mean when you say a, 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 a district is controlled by Taliban? Because I've been to districts, I mean, in my PhD now, of course, SOAS made me sign, you know, countless number of papers. But I've been to, to districts. Uh, I've been to this district in eastern Afghanistan. The actual uh, provincial capital, Jalalabad city, is part of this district. It's called Beisud district. So Beisud is a district. Jalalabad is a city inside that district. A district headquarter for Beisud is a bit out of um, the city. So when I was in the village and doing interviews, um, people in the village, when I told them I am also planning to go to the district headquarter, they were like, make sure to be back to be out of the district building before noon. I didn't know how serious they were, but because I heard it from like three, four people, I also took it a bit serious. So I was in the district trying to do my interviews with the district governor and district court and everyone. I'm talking about like a SOAS main building. Yeah, that's like the district headquarter. 
and it was like literally 10 minutes to 12 that I saw the district governor and his guards like running to the car and disappearing in the street. You know? <laughs> because of the Taliban? Yeah, well, so I tried to learn like what, so I had to also like follow and then I tried to like in the process, um, I, someone from, I asked someone who was working for a very, very long time, like one of the old officers there. And I said, what happened? Is there something? And says, he, he laughed at me. He says, no, it's like an agreement with the Taliban. So because the villagers from all uh, Beisud district uh, come to an agreement with the Taliban and the government that, okay, we cannot simply close the district headquarters uh, full time because there people need Tazkiras, like national ID card, people need some errands related to the district. So from morning to the noon, it's the government time. After 12 o'clock, if the governor stays there, Anything happened to the district, it's their responsibility. Amazing example of security and public and state building at the same time. See, so that's like how it, it operates. So now they say, we influence here, we influence, I admit, control, no. I actually argue that no one controls Afghanistan's districts. Beyond district, no one controls anything. It's not the estate, nor it is the insurgency. It's the people. They know how to govern themselves, they have a very clear understanding of their boundaries like i was searching you know the village definition and they were like we don't know what is the village definition in the afghan Kabul offices but you ask me i can give you a very clear definition this is my uh, uh, what do you call the territory and there is this line this others is my neighbors and this is our village this is somebody else so they have a very clear uh, sort of understanding of it but uh, the it differs from. If I may, if I, if I may uh, that's a fascinating. I mean, that's a fascinating insight into conflict and governance at the same time. If you look at, I mean, if let's say that this template on the ground that you just mentioned in Nagarar, would you say one that such understandings in Taliban-dominated regions are common? If they are common, can we see? in future a strategic deal being made whether it's in Doha or wherever else and let's say between not just the American and the Taliban but the Taliban and the Afghan government because these are deals between the government between the government and the, the insurgent right yeah, yeah. can that actually work out at a larger level rather than just at a ground level because that essentially then we are looking at a more grounded negotiation whether or not it's uh, even if it's a cold peace scenario, rather instead of a, you know, well, uh, ra rather than a genuine reconciliation of ideas of how, what politics should look like, whether it should be a republic or an emirate. Yeah. It is a republic at 12 noon, but emirate afterwards. Even if that format of kind of you know cold peace sustains for let's say the next three to four years, mm. and then we see which direction the wind blows, is that feasible? To answer your question, uh, I think we have to uh, zoom a little bit out of the very internal versus yes. sort of uh, top le micro and macro yeah. level yeah. Um, uh, sort of discussions. Uh, zoom out in the sense that when you t when we talk about the very local level and micro level deals that I told you, yeah. it's widespread. Right. And let me give you example. I mean, it's not spoken about because. And I, I respect the fact that it's not spoken about, and I'm raising it here because you are all students of 
security, international relations, you have to have an idea about it. Majority of the development assistance, the development uh, practitioners, majority of the humanitarian assistance to organizations, they are operating across the country. For drought, for internally displaced people supporting, for now that we are heading towards a very scary season of um, uh, natural disasters, floods are expected because we have a very massive snowfalls and we had a very sort of wet winter, which is uh, a bit worrying. Like until last year we had drought, this year we are going to have floods, unfortunately. So across all um, country, um, depending very much on local actors, right? If there is a commander from the Taliban who is uh, coming in from a close relations from either is part of the same community or has built a very strong trust among the community, it's working very smoothly. If, and this is according to some people within the country in different parts, if the Taliban are like externals, like most of the killings, um, like the executions and killings, not all, of course, uh, most of it is happening uh, by uh, like the, uh, the foreign fighters. By from the Pakistan? Pakistan. Foreign fighters are like could be from anywhere, Chechens. Okay, okay, okay. I don't know. What? Al Qaeda or Daesh? Yeah, Daesh. Like they are like people who are not Afghans. They could be from Pakistan. They could be like in in Ghazni. There were lots of Pakistanis. But would you not say? Sorry to interrupt. I mean, yeah. But that element of external fighters. I mean, of course, Afghanistan. There have been external fighters for a long time now. But we see that come out much more strongly since 2014. Since essentially after the NUG was formed. That the whole idea of Daesh as it is, yeah, as it a threat. Moved, it moved, but not entirely, because every now and then, and there are people who were like watching and monitoring it. Every now and then, the Afghan it is significant after 2014 with the emergence of the so-called Daesh, but it was existing before. Uh, for example, some uh, some uh, Uzbek IMU folks were arrested uh, in the north, and similar to that, no. So uh, it has. But to, uh, to go, go back to your question um, initially that you asked, I think the, the macro level uh, cannot, um, well, the, first of all, the local solutions that are happening with the, with the aid workers and development workers, they don't want to bring, to politicize that. Mm -hmm. So they are very preserving in terms of not selling this as an option or as a solution that is like political. Why? Because based on humanitarian principles, you don't want to like break the, the ladder after you, right? You want to make sure that there are like ways that you can sort of connect and communicate. The trust is a major, major problem, but they are trying to sort of uh, build it in a, in a way. On the international or the macro, macro top level, it may be very hard to, to work and to sell this on them because this is the reality, like I said to you. Why? Because we know that the objectives of Taliban are not simply the simple objective of a nationalist grassroots movement of the students of Madrasa, blah, 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 the kind of narrative they have. They also have a, a strong external element. So in my earlier sort of discussion of the elite, so if we consider Taliban as an elite, they are massively supported and they take their legitimacy massively from the external resources. They blame us. They say, oh, you know, the Western funded donors. And I say, we, you, we have a Western, we are with funded Western funded donors. We have, 
them, but we have you know audit reports, we have a clear accountant, and we put everything online and say, here is what we bring. The problem with you is that, tell me, where in Afghanistan are you producing those very fancy cars? Mm -hmm. I don't know the cars, but mm -hmm. I see in their propaganda videos, they are like top models. I mean, I lead a research organization, a top research organization. My car is like half broken. I don't know, it's model 2000 or 99 or something. I cannot buy it's it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But then look at the Taliban propaganda videos. I'm I don't know about guns. I'm sure the people who are experts in guns can also say how sophisticated their uh, military equipment is. But their transport, their cars are like you know top models, stereotypes, probably zero kilometers. Where do you, do you get this from? Which madrasa you get that that donation? So of course. They also have external dependencies. They have funding. There are even like research made on on their, um, you know, annual income and uh, I don't know what. So and some people got very rich in this process of Taliban within the Taliban as well. Like some leaders are genuinely like those leaders of the Soviet war. They are still the local sort of commanders. They are still the same. They they are the same people they were in the past. Nothing changed economically, but the top leadership. No, actually, each one of them have like quite big sources of funding. Do you think that uh, excluding Afghan government from the current talks is due to the Taliban not recognizing the government as a leader, or the U.S. wants them out of the talks? Uh, the latter, mostly. The Taliban. Um, uh, refuse to talk directly with the government because they, for two reasons. One, they say we don't actually recognize the Afghan government as a legitimate government. It's like a government uh, completely sponsored by the um, by the Americans. And two, um, which is not formally said, but we heard it through networks that uh, we also don't want to discuss, to speak directly with the government because they are, there is an election coming up and if we speak only to uh, this current national unity governments and we exclude the political acquisitions of the system, that means we are legitimizing this government. So I don't know how much of, if this is an actual Taliban position or is a Taliban propaganda kind of position, but they also have a point in there. I mean, um, and also I think uh, from, from, from the other side, I can say that uh, President Ghani put a negotiation team uh, all of them, he's like first round trusted people. He had an argument in his interview and said why I put why he puts this team because he says in the past everyone in the team of negotiation was saying everything. I just wanted to be like channeled and it's like unified voice. But then of course it's not welcomed by other presidential candidates who are like concerned and saying you know what happens like what is the inclusivity. Some of us are having a proposal, we are an idea for a proposal, but we will see how it goes because we want to push for much younger generation being part of the negotiation, more women, and uh, only a small percentage for people who are above uh, the age of 45 because we believe peace is about future. So we are hoping that it will reach somewhere, but at least they are like some people within the civil society trying to work on this kind of idea. My hunch is, I mean, the fact that they're not talking to Ghani or the government, city government, but they are talking to all the opposition. 
I think this logic that we should not talk to the government because of the election, you know, then we legitimize this particular grouping more than the other, yeah. Yeah. at the cost of opposition, that logic does not hold if you talk to only the opposition. Exactly. You should talk to all of them or none of them. Yeah. So my hunch is that they're using this as a negotiation tactic with the Americans to isolate the Afghan government more yeah. than anything else. Exactly, it's a tactic. It's, 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 a, it's mm -hmm. more to do with that. that you know, you and it actually weakens Afghan government's yeah. positions, particularly when uh, political opposition traveled to Moscow. Apparently the Moscow, it was not the Moscow talks, right? The government of uh, the Soviet, uh, sorry, the Soviet history. The Russian uh, government said, you know, it's civil society, you know, the same civil society that you guys are talking about, so it's nothing to do with us. <coughs> but then Karzai, uh, with his team and the other presidential candidates, and then a lot of people who kind of are confident they lost, uh, they are at loss in Afghanistan, they all joined the team and they were there. So in a way, it seemed a bit silly, but in another way, it extremely weakened the Afghan state's position. And it was a great win for Taliban because they are very media attractive uh, kind of a group. Um, to an extent that I'm telling you, like we had a dinner and we had a breakfast, they make it to the news. I mean, who else, from other, where did you hear from any other part of the world that uh, an insurgent government drinking tea and having dinner and lunches will make it to the news? But this is like how they are a bit sort of, I don't know, dramatized a little bit. Um, they are a power, it's, it's uh, undeniable, but um, in a way, uh, I think they are also given a lot of um, importance for an insurgency group. And that is really worrying, especially if the deal is, uh, the deal continues to isolate Afghans from the talk. It's going to be, not, it's going to be really more worrying for, our, for the country. Ursula, thank you so much for such a fascinating talk and such insight on to, into how this plays out on the ground. It's easy to kind of for us to talk about these processes sitting, you know, many, many miles afar, but as someone who comes from the, from, from Kabul and do, does a lot of research on the ground, we really appreciate you taking the time off. All the very best for the paper. We'll be in touch about that sure, eventually. Sure. But if I could request everyone to join me in thanking Ursula for taking the time out. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming with me.